0: Hey everyone, welcome to Resilience Unraveled. This podcast is a result of my fascination with subjects like resilience, accountability, burnout, life fulfillment, and other life and work based performance issues, as well as many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, people, and organizations, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories and expertise as well as my own synthesis of the key issues strategies tips tools and resources to thrive in life if you find this podcast useful why not go over to our site qedod.com if you'd like some resources on how to manage and beat burnout head to qedod.com forward slash burnout 2019 for some goodies stay tuned to the end to find out details of how to order a free ebook enjoy the podcast So today I'm very interested and excited and quite enthused to talk to a woman called Mary Shores. Now, I first came across Mary um, um, because of a couple of colleagues of mine who run another podcast called The Next 100 Days. And um, those two guys aren't prone to being enthusiastic about much, but they were raving about Mary's interview. And then I met her uh, online and um, I got all enthusiastic and started raving about her as well. And I've just bought her book, and I'm thoroughly enjoying looking at that as well. So, hi, Mary. Hello, Russell. So, there you are. I've already spent money, so that's a good sign, isn't it? Uh, That's always a good sign. Do you know, I was really impressed, Mary. I went out to Amazon, and uh, we'll talk about your book in a moment, not that I'm easily distracted. But you have 72 five-star reviews. Do you realise that?
1: I do realize that, and it was very interesting to me, because I remember as a first-time author, I was terrified for those reviews to come in, because sometimes, I mean, people can be brutal in reviews, but we've not experienced that. People love the book.
0: Yeah. I I don't have 72 friends, so I'm very impressed. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to chat to you today, and where in the world are you? Because I I gather by your accent, you're not uh, slumming it in England today.
1: I am in the lovely Champaign, Illinois, which is the land of cows and cornfields.
0: Cows and cornfields? Why why cows and cornfields?
1: It's just what we have around here. So in the the United States, in the Middle States, a large portion of it is very flat lands, very farming grounds. So there's no hills here. It's very green, lots of uh, farms and farm animals and corn and wheat and beans.
0: You see, that sounds that sounds lovely. I'm sitting in the middle of summer in Britain at the moment, under seventy three tons of water. So that just sounds mar- marvellous. Mm. But, but anyway, we're here to talk about two fas- fascinating things. One, which is uh, resilience and your own story, which is remarkable in itself. But also this book you've written, which I think is, um, I'm going to say, it's almost the secret of mental toughness. Um, from what I've seen of it so far, and hopefully we can have a bit of a chat about that, and let's encourage some some of my audience to have a read of it for you, because I think it's it's a really interesting book, and you've got some great ideas. So, first of all, tell us a bit about you. Tell us tell us a bit about your story, because you're someone who um, really personifies resilience. Uh,
1: you know, resilience is a huge theme in my life. I actually feel like I have um, radical resilience. As a matter of fact, I was. Featured in a, I was featured in a documentary series called the Global Resilience Project, and the woman Emma Bell, she chose fifty people from around the world who had recovered from uh, some unspeakable tragedies, but had gone on to not just recover, but to actually thrive. And so, a lot of people have gotten pretty fascinated with my story because early on, I was out on my own, you know, what I really love people to know is that as a 16-year-old, I was out on my own, a juvenile in an adult world, just trying to survive. And when I was 19, I had a daughter who passed away. She, um, actually she was born with extremely severe brain damage, which left her blind. It left her deaf. She was unable to suck a bottle, so she had to have a gastronomy tube inserted into her stomach, and she was on full life support, something breathing for her and you know, causing her heart to beat. Uh, for the first several days of her life. And after she got off life support, she did live for a year and a half. But as a young 19-year-old girl, I spent my time living in the children's hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana. There's a children's hospital there. And it really affected me because the things you see in a children's hospital are things you can just never, ever unsee. Such as the children in the burn units, the cancer units. You know, I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with life or death situations every single day with my own child. But all around me is just all of this um, hopelessness. Yeah, and I mean,
0: and that puts puts things into perspective as well, I suppose.
1: You know, I think that when I was 19, I I really didn't have the developmental capacity to process what was happening uh, to me at the time. So now that I'm 45, um, and especially while I was writing the book, I did revisit quite often that time period in my life, looking at pictures, uh, talking to people who were in my life at that time, and it was really very healing process because you see the thing is, and this is why I think uh, where we need to go in terms of resilience is understanding that trauma is stored in our bodies. You know our bodies are like a library. and all of these things that happen to us in our lives get stored in this library. and it affects us in ways that aren't so obvious. So we have a trauma as a child, or as a young adult, and we ever so slightly begin to pivot the way that we make decisions, based on based on how these traumas have changed our our brain, and it's it's just very fascinating. And where what the twist in my personal story is, after my daughter passed away, um, I was I hit a rock bottom moment for a while. And then I was able to bounce back. And when I was 24, I started my first business. Hmm. And so people ask me often, how were you able to do that? And the thing is that I would love to tell people this big empowerment story. But the truth is, Russell, it did not come from a place of empowerment. It actually came from a place of Despair. Yes. It came. It came from a place of now. You know, I'm 21, 22. All of my friends are. You know, my peer group. They're graduating college. They're getting their first jobs. They've got marketing degrees and psychology degrees and and history degrees and they're getting job offers for salary positions. And I'm sitting here working, uh, not much above minimum wage. And I realized that if I didn't do something, my fate was not going to change. Right. And the funny thing was, I sort of felt like it was past my time to go to college. Isn't that weird? Like, as a, as, a, as a grown person, I think that's a crazy thought. But, you know, we're driven so much by the way we believe and perceive our world. So when I was 22, I thought, oh, well, it's too I'm too old to go to college. So I decided to start this business. And, of course, there's no way I could have known mm-hmm. Then that I was going to be on a mission to be changing the conversation around debt collections. You know the, all of the things that have happened. It's just been such a roller coaster. So,
0: so your first business, what was what, what, what was it in the world of debt collection? Was it
1: absolutely? Isn't that odd?
0: Why why that then? Why why go there first?
1: That's a great question. So, primarily, it's um, have you ever been twenty two? Um, I'm going to say not long ago, but yes, I have been
0: 22, um,
1: (laughs) but a long time ago. You know, when you're 22 and you think that you literally know everything in the world. Oh, yes. My son is 18. Yeah. and he thinks he knows everything there's no value I can provide to him with yeah. my you know sage wisdom because he knows everything about the world yeah. and how to navigate it so that's how I was when I was 22 I really felt overly confident it's it's almost like my naivete was a good thing um, and my parents had owned a collection agency while I was growing up uh, they collected debt it was just a small local town. Uh, shop, as we call them. And that's why I thought I knew how to run this business. Well, it turns out I didn't know anything. And I had to educate myself over the next coming years. And the thing was that I was struggling because I never wanted to be the bad guy. Right. And in debt collections, it's very much... Um, about being the bad guy, you know, the guy who can threaten the most was the one who was getting the money back in those days. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to do something different because I was very passionate about understanding debt is a psychological burden. And it's a burden that keeps people from living the life of their dreams. As a matter of fact, I was just reading some statistics in the UK, there is a high percentage of suicides that are directly related to um, financial disharmony. That makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely it does, because uh, there are five basic human fears, which are poverty, um, it's poverty, illness, Loss of love, and loss of love doesn't necessarily mean a loved one dying, but it's also the same feeling if you're a parent or you love someone very much, that seeing them suffer is worse than going through the suffering yourself. And then we also have a fear of old age and death, but poverty is the number one fear, even over death.
0: Yes, and of course, the thing about death is that it's finished, isn't it? So you're not aware of it. But of course, living in poverty is a real problem. And and we have a... I'm interested in your views on this, because actually in the UK we have what's called the poverty index, where you reach a certain stage and you're called living in poverty. But actually that's that's something... I think at the moment it's about £20,000, 20, £22,000 a year, which is about $30,000. And poverty is relative, isn't it? Because you go to India, it's a lot lower than that. And... Um, and poverty is a problematical area, isn't it? Because actually, it's, it's, it's a process that rewires your brain as well. That chemical cocktail gets
1: really changed by it, doesn't it? It's, it's absolutely true. And I believe that it causes trauma. Um, I think that the fear of it causes trauma. Having anything unexpected happen to your finances causes trauma. A big tax bill, or you know, if you got an unexpected diagnosis, and perhaps you're not properly covered with whatever your insurance coverage is. There's just so many reasons that we can be, uh, even 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 the most wealthiest people in the world still suffer from that same that same fear. In fact, I feel like, and this is just my opinion, but that uh, it's interesting to me that Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, and yet he does not want to. A donate money to charity. No, yeah.
0: Well, he's going to be, isn't he going to be donating
1: to his ex-wife soon? I think so. And then she's donating it all. And I, I just, it's fascinating to me because here is a man yeah. that for, you know, could, could live out the rest of his days in opulence that the rest of the world doesn't even understand. And yet he still can't let go of it.
0: And people have very complex, um, Relationships with money, don't they? The people who are frightened of having too much, and um, and people who are you know driven to make money, and then they're still not happy even when we've got copious amounts. I mean, it's interesting you talk about the non not giving it away, but actually money for a lot of people just makes them miserable because actually money isn't really the issue. But it's interesting that you talk about this fear of poverty because actually that's a, a slightly different issue, and it's. Hmm, that's very interesting. So, so so, carry on. Sorry, I interrupted you and probably took you off your train of thought. You were talking about these five fears and how they rewire us.
1: Oh, you know, it was really when I, I began to understand that the people that I was talking to on the phone who owed a debt, they were really in a state of panic. They were in their fight-or-flight system, and so I ever so slightly... Uh, well, actually, it wasn't so slightly. One day, I had actually a very defining moment in my life where I was, you know, I was exhausted from this job. It was mentally tearing me down because I owned this business. I wanted to do well in life, but I also wanted to sleep at night. And I wanted, and maybe because I had been on the other side, you know, I had I had been on welfare. I had been on food stamps. I when I say I had nothing in living in this children's hospital, I, I mean, I literally had no resources. I I had no guidance. I I really had nothing, um, uh, except for myself and, you know, the clothes on my back, that was it. And so perhaps because I had been on the other side, I could understand these people. And I started to, I, I just really one day looked at the phone and I said, I want the next person who calls to just be happier at the end of the call than they were at the beginning and that was in 2005. Little did I know that that day was going to change the entire rest of my life. Go on. That's
0: that's too much of a teaser for me not to be <laughs> sucked straight into that story. You carry straight on. Well,
1: because what happened was um, almost as a gift from or downloads from the universe, I started to be gifted with this information because when you make a decision that your goal in life is just to make these people happy, um, gradually I started figuring out how to do that. And it began with creating this do not say list. And so the do not say list is a list of words that, that just never get used. And the list, the words are no, not, can't, won't, however, and unfortunately. Because what I realized is these people are already in a state of panic. They're already in a state of fight or flight. They're already traumatized. They really need deep healing. And the first step for me was to not worsen the situation for them. And the only thing I had control over was the words that I was using to talk to them on the phone. Mm
0: And you're absolutely right. I don't think people re- really, really think about self-talk. Never mind the talk that we use for other people. It's it's quite it's it, it's a very casual medium, isn't it? And yet, actually, it's it's the window on our soul, really, isn't it? Rather than our eyes, it really is what we say.
1: Communication communication whether it's interpersonal communication with ourselves whether it's in a business situation whether it's with our family and our loved ones and our friends our friends communication is at the root of everything it is quintessential communication is at the root of being human and the human experience so you'd come up so you've come up with this um
0: do not say list and so so how did you begin to use that at work and how else did you begin to I I suppose, de-escalate the relationship you're having with these people
1: who own money. Well, the first thing I had to do was, if I was never going to say the word no, I had to know what I was going to say instead. True. So I, I wrote out a list. On the left side of the paper, I wrote, stop saying. Yeah. And on the right side of the paper, I wrote, start saying. Okay. And so for every instance that I thought it was necessary to answer a question with no... I just wrote out a phrase, telling people what I could do instead of what I couldn't do, okay. and it really changed everything. And there was a lot more to it because I, as I started to study uh, human neurology, neurochemistry, you know, the stress chemicals. I started to understand what people really needed was to feel heard. It's like we have these situations and we're unable to emotionally move on in in a conversation until we've checked the box in our mind that we have been heard. And then as soon as we can do that, um, the the person can emotionally move on. I'm sure you've had an experience at some point, especially being a podcast host, that you're talking to someone who is really stuck in their own story. And it's like you're talking to this person, and they're telling you this long story, and it's really not on the point, but you you try to get in there, and the next thing you know, they've started that story over from the beginning.
0: I'm I'm going to say yes, (laughs) (laughs) only because it's so true.
1: Oh, I'm glad that you can understand because the thing is, the reason that people get on that autopilot story and repeat it over and over again is because there's not there's a part of them that doesn't feel heard. There's a part of them that has not felt understood, and it's very important that their situation is validated. You know, especially I see it in the coaching industry all the time. I'm I'm, I'm sure that with a podcast about resilience that you've had lots and lots of coaches on, and a lot of times they want to get you out. of that story and they want to get you moving forward, which is great. But we have to be emotionally receptive to that information. And so we really need our experience validated. And what that would look like is just some simple words like, oh, you know, I can really see what you're going through here. I mean, I feel like, come on people, it's time to really understand the power, the connection power of empathy and compassion. Because there's something lacking right now in our society for that.
0: Yeah, um, I, you know, I really want to argue with you because I normally do, but I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. And I think actually the point of um, the herd thing is it's this, it's this idea of control, isn't it? I think people more than anything else fear a lack of control, and all those you know those big things that you put up earlier are all about control issues, and. Um, so I'm interested. So you put this list together. You you you've um, you're now dealing with people. I'm guessing this is um, useful stuff with employees and you know team members and such like. So you, you've got this list. So how did that begin to change things? How did that change the dynamic of the relationships with the people that owed money? Money.
1: You know, it, it started to change the way that they were looking at debt. One of my early on goals was I wanted people to feel good about the fact that they were paying a debt instead of feeling the shame and the unworthiness for having a debt.
0: I see. So you're sort of reframing the, the concept in their heads in a way.
1: And here's what's interesting. Um, a, a, a school counsellor contacted me recently and she said that She heard me on a show. She got the book. She goes, initially I was resistant because I didn't see what I would have in common with the debt collector. But she works with a group of students that are at risk population. So these are the students that are, you know, they've got some kind of situation at home. They're already underperforming at school. They're, They're at risk. They're in a bad place. And her student population in March was only Passing at an 8% passing rate. So that means, you know, not very many of her students were doing well. And she said she applied all of my techniques with these students, and that two months later, at the end of that semester, so school here in the US lets out in uh, May sometimes June, by the end of May, she had them at a ninety-six percent passing rate. They went from eight percent passing to ninety-six percent passing. It's time to understand that we are living in times where, you know, that's how resilience is made. When those she's healing those children with her words and she's she's giving them the resilience that they're going to need. She's teaching them the coping skills by her kindness, her compassion, her ability to validate. So it goes validate, and then you want to plant a seed of happiness. So you validate someone's experience, you know, I can completely see why this is troubling you, and then you plant a seed of happiness, which would be something like, I want to assure you, or the great news is, or, you know, I'm very confident something and then you can hit them with the
0: solution mm. and so are you are you still working in this organization because i mean a lot of people who um have written books and such like this sort of give up what made them great in the first place and then become coaches but again <laughs> well, I get, well it's, it's sort of what if you can't do it teach it almost but but you're still working like you're still running the organization
1: I do I, I run my organization and I run a um, training and development company for corporations where we teach we teach transformational communication all the time to other companies. I am on a mission to change that conversation around debt. So I'm working heavily in the debt collections industry in the US as well as um, hopefully writing more books because I love writing.
0: So so looking back at your career as a CEO and uh, um an operations an operational in an operator and an organization um what do you think managers and leaders need to do to um to build resilience in their teams because a bit like you talked about the school teachers sometimes you sometimes need to learn these skills don't you
1: It's so interesting talking about leadership because um there's a there's a sense of empowerment that can be handed down or handed across from one person to another. I think that one of the beginning places for communication in leadership is to begin with clarity. Uh, just yesterday, I took a frantic, frantic phone call from my mother, who my mother lives in fear a lot because she... Um, is always worried she's going to lose her job. And there are places where the office politics make people fearful every day that if they just step step their toe in one wrong direction, they're going to get that pink slip. And she called and she said, I don't know what to do because my executive director told me to get all of this information to him by Tuesday But there's another boss who's actually more senior than the executive director, who's the vice president, gave me the opposite directions. And so, of course, now she's in a panic because she doesn't want to call out. She doesn't want to be a tattletale. She's terrified to ask for clarity, but she's got two opposing directions. And so one of the things that I think is extremely important in in leadership is to always be transparent um, always provide as much clarity as possible. And even if you don't even know what the clarity is, to be transparent about that and say, here's where we're at in the process. And as soon as we know more, we will definitely communicate it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because it,
0: it's it's often said that, um, I, I actually, I think the whole leadership thing is completely overcomplicated. And I've always had it boiled down to about being, you know, having clear having clarity and being relentless so you know, just, just applying the same thing over and over and over again. And from that comes trust and accountability. And and I and I, and I find it hard to understand why people overcomplicate it. And I wonder what's your view on that?
1: I've I've actually felt the same way as you many, many times. In fact, um I remember when I was younger, I used to worry because I didn't think I had the best personality. And I, I remember believing that to be a good leader you had to have this really, you know, cheerleader uh, personality. And I don't have that at all. In fact, I'm very, very direct. What I learned was that it's really about sharing your mission. I have a team of who I believe are utter rock stars and my team impresses me on a daily basis. And we are such a close-knit bunch and I'm so proud of them. And I, when I really look at the reasons why, it's because I'm honest. It's because I take accountability when I make a mistake it's because if they don't appreciate something I did they know they can tell me and it's because I share my vision and my mission with them and they can get behind that because it makes them feel it makes them know that they are a part of something well I think
0: what you're doing is you're stating a vision and mission and people can choose to join in and that of course is control and that is back to accountability you know and i think this word is overused and understood under understood today in the same way that leadership is i think part of what you're saying here you know making words important and defining them and making them simple the skill is making a word like leadership and clarity easy so people know what you're talking about
1: that's right that's right and you know it's so funny because we in talking about resilience There was so much that I didn't understand of how my work touched upon resilience because I had um, staff that was becoming very empowered and I had uh, one person was able to get off all of her prescription medication. People were healing from their past traumas just because we're rewiring ourselves with the way we communicate every single day. And that's how I have been able to continue to recover from a lot of the the roller coaster traumas that I've been through. And it only begins to deepen every year the more that my path expands in life, the more that I'm getting a, a, an even more understanding about healing.
0: So um, I know you've very kindly said we can um, n- 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 record a separate episode all about your book, which I really want to talk about in more depth. But just to round this section off, um, just thinking back over the career of Mary Shores, what's the big, what's the big message that, you've, you know, that you would um, take out of your own life so far?
1: I think that the big message is we're okay, and we need to remember that money is a made-up thing. You know, we literally invented it, yeah. but we live by it. We, we value ourselves by it. We've put so much definition on this money that it is making us sick, and it's, it's causing issues. You know, I feel like when I was a young girl, I loved to play the game Monopoly, yeah. And in the game of Monopoly, there's only one way to win the game. Do you remember what it is? Uh, well, I
0: used to find owning
1: the bank, being the banker, the best way to win the game. <laughs> <laughs> well, so maybe, the the, banker, maybe there's two ways. Be-
0: <laughs> there's a legitimate way and a naughty way. <laughs> uh
1: huh. The way that I knew how to win Monopoly was the only way to win was you had to bankrupt all your friends. Yes, exactly. And that is so representative of business in the last century, yeah. right? But there's another way, and that way is through collaboration. How we're really going to make a difference and change in this world is through collaboration and stop playing Monopoly.
0: Yeah, I think it's an important business lesson to say that actually we're not trying to win by destroying other people's businesses. We're trying to win and grow the overall landscape. And I think once you understand that, I think um, business becomes a lot easier, doesn't it?
1: Brilliant, yes, absolutely.
0: Mary, it's been a delight to talk to you, and um, I'm hoping people join us for part two when we're going to talk about your book, which I really genuinely believe to be something quite special. So um, thank you so much for taking time with us today, Mary, and um, I hope to speak to you soon.
1: My pleasure.
0: You take care. Thanks for listening today. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash podcasts and subscribe to hear other titles in our series. Or you can contact us at info at qedod.com to hear and find out more about tough love, leadership, accountability, resilience and burnout. You can go to our site, qedod.com forward slash burnout2019 to hear and get access to a load of resources to help you manage and fight burnout and you can go to qedod.com forward slash free ebook to hear more about the fundamentals of resilience until the next episode keep on thriving